This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or... Like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3RRR's weekly exploration and interrogation of the tinkerers and thinkerers, the doers and the movers and shakers who are creating new systems in the cracks of the old ones. Tonight on Greening the Apocalypse, we'll be chatting to one of our favourite people. He's a return guest, although this time in person, not on the phone. He is gardener, farmer, grazier, educator and all-round splendid fellow, Jody Roebuck. He is... Uh, going to be discussing rotational grazing and land regeneration through clever animal management. Stay tuned. As always, co-conspirator, the perma-blitzing polyamorous pagan and particularly picturesque purveyor of plucked plantains, prickly pears and purslanes from parks, pastures and pathways, both public and private. I got stuck on the letter P and ran with it, the magnificent line of the lake, Adam Grubb! For the record... That's a, that's a running joke, the polyamorous. I didn't hear another word you said other than, at that point, the blood rushed to my ears and they were blocked. Polyamorous pagan and particularly picturesque purveyor of plucked plantains, prickly pears, personally from parks, past and pathways, both public and private. Tune in next week, kids, when I introduce Adam with the letter Q. <laughs> Hello, Adam. Hi. Well, you're turned up to 11 tonight, mate. You're like spinal Oh, I just tapping. smoked a whole bunch of crack. Oh, that's uh, way to No, go. no, I'm very excited. Thanks for great. Jody, Jody's in... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jody's in town and it's, uh, it's going to be a great show. In the rotating chair, direct from her South Coast retreat, the Green Beret of Exposing Greenwash, the status quo shaker and muckraker, journalist, writer, surfer and legend, Sarah Coles. <laughs> it's your, your turn to speak. Oh, uh, um, hello. How Good to doing? be here. Awesome. How is the surf? Oh, I don't know. That's what I was thinking, that maybe you shouldn't introduce me as a surfer because I'm not very good. It's it's about the spirit, not the talent, I reckon, with the surf. Oh, yeah. Are you a beachcomber? No. Ah. Our guest tonight is a surfer. Oh, really? Mm. Oh. There's something to chat about later. Great. Mm. Awesome. And as always, the spanner man who drives the van, the chief assembler. Let's face it, he is a miracle worker. Every week, Jed McCartney. Evening, Bushy. <laughs> And voice of reason. <laughs> how are you? Good. My ears are coming down from that intro. Yeah, I didn't think how loud that would be as I got that excited. Uh, got some cycling or bike news? Oh, look, the big news of the year was uh, that they've gone with disc brakes in, in the pro peloton. Yep. Uh, about three races into the season, no more disc brakes because the bloke fell off in Paris Bay, cut his leg, like gashed it quite badly because those brake discs are very sharp. Mm. 
So they've stopped using them now. Jeez, it's a flash-in-the-pan response from the cycling world, isn't it? <laughs> a bit reactionary. It's, it's, it's a big debate. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of people think, uh, and I'm probably one of them, that it's just the next marketing gimmick because mm. uh, they need something. But um, That big cycle lobby. Yep. You think, you think the injury itself may have been a conspiracy? No. Okay. No, I don't think that. But um, mm. I think, you know, if I was riding a commuter around town, I'd mm. want disc brakes so I could stop in the wet before I ran into the back of a car that did something dumb. Mm. But um, in the pro peloton, the trouble is they're so touchy. One bloke touches his brakes, they'll lot it down. Mm. How soon until we see, like, naked, um, like, Tour de France with no brakes? Oh, that's the way it should be. Absolutely. Yeah. That'll separate the wheat from the chaff. That's what the Italians have been doing for years. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> what are these levers for? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's April Amnesty as well, kids. So all this week, Triple R are doing their After Dark series, whereby you, dear subscribing listeners, can email the station to book a double pass to bring your non-subscribing <coughs> friends along to the performance space for some amazing live music between 10 and 12 each night and inspire your non-subscribing friends to get off their bottom and hand over some currency. So this station can continue to thrive and I can continue to um, be quite loud in Jed's ear with long, bloody pee-based intros for Adam. So uh, what's caught our eye this week, dudes? Um, I've got one. Go for it. So I found it in Creative Nonfiction Journal. Do you know what that is? I don't know. Um, well, Bushy, and thanks for asking. <laughs> creative nonfiction is a genre I've become quite interested in of late, and um, it's writing that uses literary styles and techniques to create factually accurate articles. Mm. And um, I found it in issue 51 of the magazine. It's an article written by Elizabeth Colbert, who is in the, she writes for The New Yorker. She's a journalist and she wrote the 2014 book, The Sixth Extinction and Unnatural History. Have either of you read I've that? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Yeah, so that book demonstrates the Earth is in the midst of a man-made extinction. And it won a Pulitzer. Anyway, the article that caught my eye is refreshing and is called Turning Out the Lights Just Isn't Going to Do It. And there was one bit that I liked the most that I'd like to read where the magazine asked her what she makes of the term sustainability. Mm-hmm. And she says, I think about this all the time. I do hate the term. I think if it's rigorously applied, sustainability is a very useful term. But when you look at most people's definition, well, then it's not. MacArthur Fellow John Holdren, currently President Obama's Chief Science Advisor and Director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy wrote a paper many years ago about what is really sustainable and it requires using very little of a finite resource over time, the opposite of the rate at which we're running through got to find the other page, (laughs) running through resources. So sustainability is not recycling nor bringing cloth bags to the supermarket it is fundamentally rethinking everything that we do and it's living very, very differently If I could distill the problem down to as short a formulation as possible, I would say everyone is looking for a solution that allows us to continue to live more or less as we do in a way that is sustainable. And I'm not convinced at all that solution exists. So I I thought she really echoed what we're always saying on this show. Mm. And um, I just found it good that somebody said it. Wonderful. I, yeah, I think she's... Is that a downer? To no, it's hit the nail right on the head. Yeah. Mm. 
I think if you say that, it's the opposite of a downer, actually, because mm. it's caring enough to call bullshit on things that are a bit easy. That's why you are the Green Beret of cutting through greenwash. Mm. And I will continue to introduce <laughs> you that way, no matter how. I don't like that. Can I have polyamorous instead? Yeah, all right. You've, got, it. It. You've got all yours. <laughs> actually, no, I don't want that either. You touched it last. <laughs> boom, boom. Uh, Adam. Um, I read something in The Independent that came out a few days ago called Human Brain Hardwired for Rural Tranquility. And it says, according to the preliminary results of a study by scientists at Exeter University, an area of the brain associated with being calm, meditative, uh, lit up when people were shown pictures of rural settings. But images of urban environments resulted in a significant delay in reaction before a part of the brain involved with processing visual complexity swung into action as the viewer tried to work out what they were seeing. Mm. So they go on to say that when we look at rural or natural landscapes, we've actually got all these areas in our brain that we share with primates for um, processing that. And we do it as second nature. It's really easy for us to do. But when we look at the complexity of cityscapes, this requires uh, there's less kind of natural algorithms for processing that. We have to put a lot more energy into it. And it stresses us out. And one of the uh, professors from Exeter University, Michael Deplidge, uh, a former environmental environment agency chief scientists in the uk said urban dwellers could be suffering in the same way as animals kept in captivity he said the move to the cities had been accompanied by an incredible rise in depression and behavioral abnormalities now that might sound like a bit of a long bow but there's actually tons of research along this line looking at how 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 doing cat scans on people's brains and um, also asking them questions about their moods, putting them through intelligence tests. And they find things like, uh, for instance, there was a 2009 one I remember reading ages ago where they put subjects through a battery of psychological tests and people who had walked through the city were in a worse mood and scored significantly lower <laughs> on a test of attention and working memory. Uh, and in fact, they found that just glancing at a photograph of urban scenes led to measurable impairments at least when compared with pictures of nature what on earth is that there's some ungodly sounds that's the sound of end times approaching <laughs> i think there's something happening in a was quite fitting um but anyway we're yes i, I went for I, I i farm sat for four days mm. Uh, over the weekend and Thursday, Friday and spent a lot of time just glancing at beautiful rural scenes and milking goats and um, doing all the rural things. And then I rode for like 60 k's through the countryside. Um, cause, nice. Yeah. And uh, I tell you, this stuff works. It's, it's, on, it's like a... Yeah. This nature stuff. This nature stuff. It's effective. It's really... I, I mean, it must compare favourably to anti, uh, chemical antidepressants in terms of how much it improves your mood. That's and why all the cyclists like going out to the, you know, the mountains mm, and riding yeah, around yeah. there and looking at nature. Mm. 
And that's why all the rednecks complain. You go, they should pay rego. They take up too much room on the road. I digress. Sorry. Um, well, I just... My thing this week... I, we read a lot of heavy stuff all the time, don't we? Like, we, we do immerse ourselves. I just ourselves. finished reading Voss, which is the heaviest novel ever written. Yeah, right. Have you read it? No, I haven't. Oh, man. How'd you cope? Well, I don't want to spoil it for anyone. How does it end? It ends badly. Oh, <laughs> now you have spoiled it in case I was going to read it's it. It's based on an explorer who thought there was a, um, you know, a body of water in the middle of Australia, oh, yeah. Leichhardt. It's so kind of based on his situation. This is the Patrick White book, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Well, because we do a lot of research and we read some heavy stuff and some very inspirational stuff, let me just say we read a lot of very inspirational stuff as well. Um, I took a couple of days out and I picked up a quick little page turner. It's a book, so I'm in book review mode now. The book is called (laughs) Farewell My Subaru and it's by Doug Fine. And it's quite funny and a little bit earnest and a little bit modest. And it's basically a guy, um, city slicker type dude, and he moves to a 40-acre property, a ranch called the Funky Butt Ranch in New Mexico. And he basically documents 12 months also of just constantly getting it wrong and <laughs> nearly killing himself. Uh, it's written in 07, so he keeps referring to the Bush administration. And the, there's a coyote that hangs around and constantly tries to pick off his chickens and his goats and say so nickname is a coyote, Dick Cheney. Um, and there's a little bit of uh, stuff on YouTube about him. He's basically, he had a goal, and he, that is he wanted to wean himself off oil, off fossil fuel dependencies. Uh, New Mexico Desert's probably a strange place to do that in some ways. But uh, he went out there, he gets himself a water tank and windmill and he gets himself some goats because he he doesn't want to give up Netflix or ice cream. So he can't uh, make his own Netflix, but he can make his own goat milk ice cream. So that's part of his things. And he he joins a local co-op and yada, 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 gets his solar power set up and all that sort of stuff. And he gets a a truck uh, switched over to veggie oil. He said the great thing about driving past people with a car that runs on veggie oil is you just see them all turn around and go and get the munchies because it <laughs> smells like a burger. But uh, it's, a, it's a great little... Because what I like about it is it doesn't paint any kind of utopian vision at all. Like, he does have some serious struggles and some stuff. And But one of the things it does mention in here, he's constantly referring to his... Um, his left-leaning hippie acid crystal friends, who he often speaks about quite favourably, but like sometimes a little bit boggled. But he also refers to his right-leaning, gun-toting, UN-fearing, backwater Republican voting neighbours. And he kind of... He gives them an introduction each time like that, but he doesn't sort of go into shit-can them wholeheartedly. He just sort of points out the differences in where they're coming from, but then gets on with building those friendships. And that got me sort of thinking a little bit that it's a, the easiest thing in the world is to gravitate towards like-minded people. And you always see ads up, you know, flatmate wanted, blah, 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 looking for like-minded people to share a community garden, whatever. It's very important as we move forward in this world to come to terms with how we cross-pollinate with unlike-minded people. So you're going to adopt a right-wing slag? Got one in the dungeon. <laughs> uh, no, but um, I've actually pushed myself to do this a bit you know, since I moved to the country, like to throw down the gauntlet and, and talk to people who, you know, the moment I meet them, I kind of know I'm not going to gravitate towards a lot of their views. Yeah. Mm. But if you're open and if you're cautious and if you're respectful and polite, you can end up finding common ground. You might not. Like my motivation to downshift as much as I can to a simpler way of living is very ecologically um, motivated. It always has been. 
I met a guy a while ago, and when we got chatting initially, I thought, man, this is the last guy I want to talk to tonight at this party. Spoke to him for about three hours. He wants to completely downshift, go off-grid and do all these different things, but he's motivated by the economics of it, and he, quote-unquote, I'm sick of every gouging me for cash. So give the unlike-minded a chance. And also, have a shot at Farewell My Subaru by Doug Fine. It's out through a publisher. Um, <laughs> and was it published a decade ago, would you say? 2007, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was during the Bush administration. And it was actually before the big credit crunch too. So, yeah, um, he's still doing it though. There's a little video of him on YouTube and he's out there and his freakish snowstorms come through and covered his entire roof and his entire solar array with snow and he's got to get <laughs> up there and scratch it off and he, he just constantly looks like he's going to fall and die. Like he's... <laughs> I've got a soft spot for people that um, insist on using dangerous things, even though they're a bit clumsy, but it's pretty cool. But, yeah, he, he's, he's downshifted everything to a much simpler way of living, and he's got his goats and he's got his girlfriend, and they're enjoying a nice little life out there. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio. Greening the Apocalypse on Radio 102.7, free Triple R. And Triple R is where you are. This is an exciting event indeed. In the studio tonight is an amazing force of nature. He is Australasia's leading practitioner and trainer in biointensive growing. A gardener and a farmer, a grazier, and as I said at the top of the show, an all-round splendid fellow. <laughs> I'm talking to you, Jody Roebuck. Welcome to Triple R. Evening, Poshy. How are you? Real good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, mate. Now, um, give us a bit of a, a rundown on where things are at Adams. Well, we so we had Jody on last year and we were talking very much about your your role as being a proponent of biointensive agriculture and for those that aren't familiar with it shall, shall I give it a, a yep, crack so yep. it's it's a way of growing vegetables and in fact it's been very much um, developed by John Jevons who's your mentor uh, towards growing a full diet a vegan diet as it turns out in a closed system so you're growing all the carbon crops to feed the soil and it's done with hand tools and it's famously associated with the double digging technique which builds topsoil and what blows my mind about it is that growing vegetables is really difficult to do sustainably like there are no ecological Analogs. You can't look to nature and find anything that looks like a field of grain or a field of broccoli, any of the annuals. There's nothing like that in nature. And one of the things that makes, you know, you think, you, you think there could be nothing more sustainable than an organic carrot, but the opposite is almost true, that you can't grow any of those annual stuff without turning the the soil which exposes it to the to the rain and the sun and erosion and it's that process of growing grains and to a lesser extent growing vegetables which has brought down civilizations over the eons and yet john jevons has come up with this method for growing annual crops which actually build soil fair fair cool fair call yeah no. john's um i guess just a few more things to throw throw at that um it's a great introduction thanks adam i guess it's also the focus on growing storable calories which really it really 
an appetite to eat for not just 52 weeks of the year, but something, you know. Yeah. As, uh, yeah, a season extension through storable calories. Uh, living ground covers, never any bare ground. Mm. Uh, and it's actually minimal till once you've got the system set up. So minimal till means you don't have to turn that soil Very, as yeah, much. Yeah, surface cultivation. Yep. Right. Yep. yep. So you're not exposing it to the elements as much. Yep. And yep. it's always mulched, and so that also protects it from the elements. So this is like, this is, this. I think we read a quote from um, John Michael Greer last time where he was talking about biointensive uh, being... For future generations, they're not going to be looking back and saying the greatest gift that our generation gave them was um, the iPod or mm. um, the space shuttle or whatever. That's last generations, but um, it it'll be something like the biointensive method, where we actually improved on our ancestors' methods of growing food, and we've figured out a way of doing it that builds the soil. Mm. Now, my question to you now, because that's not what we're going to talk about tonight. You're actually on a farm in New Zealand in Taranaki, and uh, I understand you're not biointensivizing the the heck out of the whole thing. Why not? And what do you do elsewhere? Well, it's still 24 hours on a day, so that's you know. And we we brought five acres. It's a our home block, although we're grazing more than that now. So you're really uh, we've got a, a flat aspect in the interior of that pro- um, property, and that's the main reason I brought the land. I, I, I like the flat bit. That looked you know mm. looked easier. Uh, <laughs> there's no topsoil. We knew that we're on a subsoil of straight mountain ash. And if you've seen us on YouTube with Curtis Stone, you've seen me put my arm in a, in a that soil, you know, past my elbow. So you started so, off with terrible soil. You could we dug it once, and now and, you can just put your whole it. arm down it. Mm-hmm. It's like quicksand. Yep. So th- sounds terrifying. So, yeah. Sounds <laughs> like Gene Frank th- Herbert Gene. <laughs> so um, with all get with more organic you know, matter. <laughs> you guys can see my new ears. Lots of worms though. Like yes. Gene. So um, a recent um, event with Milkwood, a guy. Um, his feedback was um, he's trying to describe the Jody Roebuck experience, and I mean, you guys can see my hairstyle, but yeah, you call me the Dalai Lama of dirt. And <laughs> <laughs> I just take all this for granted. This is my seventeenth year, you know. It just seems like it's so simple. Yeah. Mm. But I guess there's a bit to it, and mm. yeah, the more I look around, the more I see. You know, there's some other great, great different um, agricultural um, regenerative agricultural um, practices out there on the planet now. So we're not just into into one. We're, we're we're looking at them all, and mm. yeah, I pretty much got T-boned about eight years ago by a local farmer. Got the farming bug. He mm. taught me how to fence, and I had that kind of moment when he he thought I'd become a good enough contract fencer. And he says, "Now you know how to fence. You're going to get interested in grass." And I just gave him the biggest blank stare, like boring. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's the bug I've had. I've just been chasing chasing it down pretty hard. Right. Um, just been fortunate enough to you know the, the harder you work, the luckier you are. You are type. Um, to work with likes of Darren Doherty, Joel Salatin, um, doing my nighttime internship. You know, there's a lot of stuff online, mm. and really just you know putting into practice. Um, uh, really enjoying moving animals on our farm. Okay, mm. I think you find you got to, so outside of your veggie patch. Did I answer you're, you're, you're growing grass. Yeah, and we're growing stacks. On top of that grass, there are herbivores. Okay. Yep. okay, so just rewind. I grew up in town. Mm-hmm. Um, prior diet was vegetarian, mm-hmm. but once I, you know, look, started to um, look at this outer acreage and, you know, started as a, a, a wannabe farmer. Um, yeah, just really started enjoying it. The, the most stressful thing I think we originally does was, was um, 
chasing four animals around five acres with the family and the, and the, mm. the quad bike and cussing and cursing and yeah and and now I'm I'm the leader they've you know got a mob of about ninety I'm trying to grow the mob as fast as I can to keep up leases but yeah really enjoyable um, just seeing of how much of a um, uh, I guess a a, a great impact you can have on a landscape with with the mob, no, the mob stocking. This is what we want to talk about. We really want to tie this down. We've uh, in the past we've tried to really get the details on this one. So what you're doing, it's a, a discipline of farming, yep. and it deals with animals on grasslands, and it seeks to mimic natural cycles of those grazing animals moving across grasslands. Let's iron those details out so our listeners know what it's about, and maybe talk about how that has worked towards regenerating your land. Okay, so I guess um, this is, you know, Salatin's words. Uh, if we look to nature, you know, the patterns in nature, and then follow the details, uh, animals mob for safety. Mm-hmm. And so by mob, that means they just they don't spread out over the whole paddock like you see. Yeah, if, can, um, conventional set stock farms where they're spread out there yeah. for a long time. So they're yeah, they're mobs. They're tight. It's high density. In nature, it is because you got you got wolves around. Yep. You, you don't want to. You, you're just trying to get to the centre of your huddle. Yep. No one so wants you, to be on the outside. So that's um, you, you've nailed it there, Adam. The key thing there is that they're mobbing for because of the predator. Yeah. And I'll just throw a spanner in the works. We've got no predators in New Zealand. We're <laughs> one of the few countries in the world. But yeah. so so they're they're, they're tight. Mm. That's their safety. Well, in, the, in this country, it used to be seven metre long goannas, the megalania, mm-hmm. until humans got here. Yeah, the most terrifying creatures that have walked the earth since the dinosaurs. What about probably. the giant wombat? So, I don't think they were carnivores. They weren't carnivores, were they? That would be terrifying. They can come at you. But anyway, yeah, there's okay. predators. So, so there's three things here. Mm. They mob for safety, they move regularly, and and it's a long time till they come back to the same area. Mm. So... Salatin says the... the greatest Joel Salatin. Oh, yep, 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 okay, yep. th- thanks, Bush. Yep. Joel Salatin of Polyfast Farm says the greatest farm in, in inventory ever is the portable electric fence, which allows mm. you to mimic that pattern. Yeah. So and this has only been available for a decade or two. Yeah, or maybe, yeah, maybe, longer, maybe 50 commonly, years, no more, but really less. You yeah, haven't yeah. seen it around much no. until the last two decades. So, so that's us. I'm out moving my portable electrics yeah. and I've grown, grown this mob of animals, um, which I continue to grow, and... I move them every day, and just there's a. I've got a little saying that the the the, the closer you get to a daily move, hmm. the the longer the list of benefits. So hmm. there's all the problems of conventional agriculture. Just we just don't see them. Hmm. Hmm. So yeah. some of those problems for for example, degraded land, yep, overgrazed pastures, um, sickness in the animals, yep. Run, yep. yep, runoff, facial eczema, foot rot, mm-hmm. all, all that what stuff. About the um, damage to the land from the hoof. We're, we're basically um, there's a bit more to it, but uh, we're, it's basically like the permaculture garden of you know mulching. We're basically mulching a landscape. So we are typically on um, in warm season. It's ninety days until we come back to the same area with the sheep, yeah. and in cool season it's one hundred and fifty days. We're on a on a pasture that's got um, vertical aspect. So, so that you rest it for 150 days or yep. 90 days. Ha, ha, sorry, how long did you say how long they're on there? One day. One day. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, one, a ratio of one to ninety, one to 150. Yeah. Yep. Way so, different too. So they're they mob tight. The whole farm is on sabbatical, mm-hmm. except for that little area, which mm-hmm. is elastic. Everyone says, "What's the daily area for 
X amount of animals, the answer is it's elastic. Mm-hmm. Depends on the age of the animal, the mm-hmm. season, size of grass. But to be cut it short, we're on a tall grass. It's tall grass farming, and we're never chewing it to the ground. There's never any bare ground, and you, there's two things going on, especially with small animals. The regenerative ticket, everything lines up when you've got the vertical aspect in the grass, which means you can put maximum biomass through the rumen mm-hmm. in a small area and in a small time um, window of time. That's just basically more grass there if the grass is more tall. More food, yep, more yep. food. So yep. your stocking rate goes up, mm-hmm. so you can mob it tighter <coughs> even more. Mm-hmm. And the goal is not to ever eat all that out. Through um, You need the density, especially with sheep, and we've, we struggle to find a lot of people doing this cattle. We struggle to find people doing this with um, sheep. Mm-hmm. But once you get that tight stocking rate, the goal is never to eat um, all of all of that food in, in an area. It's actually to trample it and to, to have put down litter. Mm-hmm. So it's just sheep mulching. Yep. And then so eating some of it, but then crushing the rest down yep, as a just, thatch. A thatch yep, so, the, yep. so the hoof mm-hmm. is actually a key role here. And putting so our, our grounds are never bare. Um, they've got you know three inches of dry material on top of them, which captures and holds all the um, manure and urine. And so yeah, there's no such thing on our farm as runoff, broken ground. Um, it's just a, 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 a really um, regenerative way to improve you know ground that's been degraded in the last 100 years of ag. So so we've taken over, um, the other thing we're doing is a lot of local leases. We've got a lot of free leases and Mm. we've taken over land that nobody wanted Mm. and we've repaired it in as little as 12 months. And I also work abroad in a lot of dry climates, um, Victoria Mm. and California, and I I, I track down these these graziers that are doing this work and I'm I'm just mesmerised by the, um, the same pattern that I see on these farms, the quality of life the farmers have. Hmm. The quality of, lo- quality of life the animals have, the flight zone with the animals, which is that they're just comfortable with you, the point that they'll turn from you, they come they come up to check you out. They're fat and shiny, and to see restored grasslands in a place like California that's never been so challenged, I swear I've never seen not, anything so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, Apart from uh, some gardens, but <laughs> we're gonna have to go to another track. But when we come back, it'd be good to. Um, start talking about some of the things that you are seeing, the effective signs yep. that you're looking for in this yep. regenerative practice. And uh, we might even touch a little bit on what you're talking about there with the land access, with the leasing, because that's a, an obstacle a lot of people imagine they have, and, yep. and you're nice here to tell us that's not the case. Yep. Three, triple, ah. Oh. You're listening to Triple R, Greening the Apocalypse is the show, and we've got the wonderful Jody Roebuck in the studio um, across the ditch from East Bondi uh, from New Zealand, the land of the long white cloud. Now, we're talking about regenerative agriculture. We're talking about high-rotation stock management, and, Adam, we just thought it'd be a good idea coming back from the break for you to quickly give summary to what we've been talking about before we carry on. All right, I'll have a crack. So, I mean, we've been talking about something which to me is completely counterintuitive because I've been hearing my whole life that uh, cattle and sheep are one of the largest problems of environmental destruction. Like going back historically, not just talking climate change, but uh, degrading Australia's waterways and probably New Zealand as well um, and all around the world. And I don't think that stuff is even incontroversial. Like you wouldn't disagree with that, right? I I totally agree. Yeah. But what is... really surprising is you're taking these animals including hard-hooved animals 
And it's almost like, well, they're such a powerful tool of destruction, but we can swing it around the other way. And so what you've been describing has is to change the way we manage those animals. And instead of letting them just spread out evenly across the landscape, where they tend to eat grass down, it's almost like the tragedy of the commons, that um, famous thought experiment where if you let everybody graze on the common land it ends up at dirt and then nothing grows well we're doing that on private land we don't even need tragedy of the commons we're just by managing our animals badly the the productive potential of all that grazing land is not being reached and what you're saying is by mimicking nature using temporary electric fencing to model that there are predators in the environment which force the animals to mob up and bunch up and move around the landscape and not come back for 90 or 150 days, then you end up with this huge productivity boost of grass. And I think you're even saying, we didn't get to this, but if... So the solution to degradation and overgrazing is to increase the number of animals on the land. Is that... Yep. Is that what it comes... Is that what it... You eventually get to. Yeah, it's... um, That's mind-blowing. So I guess I just need to introduce one thing here, and Mm. a lot of farmers and possibly environmentalists um, aren't actually aware of what... Okay, let's define what is overgrazing. Mm. Mm. It's it's to do with days rest before you come back onto the grass. So if it's a juvenile grass and you eat that top off it, Mm. that's detrimental. So Mm. so, so the day's recovery is key. Mm. Um, And... And so once a few, let's let's look at set stocking because that's where the problems come from. Mm. You've got a few animals out there. So set stocking is yep. when yep. you don't move the animals it, all the l- time. It looks like the traditional farm that's worn yep. out and yep. sometimes they're never moved. It's covered in thistles. So, that, and so what they do is they go out and they look for ice cream and they mm. just eat the palatable grass and they erode it mm. and they leave the problematic grasses and they become problems and then you get conventional people with sprays and, you know, as soon as you mob them, a whole lot of things happen. They socialise well. Mm-hmm. Um, That's nice. Through con- yep, so it's like a dance party. Uh-huh. Then and then they. How do you know when your animals are socialising well? You can you can just see like right. they're just so rela- they're relaxed. Yep. Yeah, their flight zone lessens the point uh-huh. that they'll turn away from you. My yep. my animals will come a metre away from me. Yeah, yeah. one you comes up for a scratch. They associate me with dinner, mm-hmm. the next feed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, they're on a, you know, a, a thick grass, so their, their hooves aren't breaking the ground or um, getting mud in them to, to get foot rot. Mm. Um, and yeah, they they actually promote. They 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 start eating everything evenly. That's the, that's one of the, the key things too. So so you have this tool, and really it's the management, us and the the electrics that is. Um, this is elastic. I mean, meaning the size. And the density and everything, it's, we're moving them regularly, so we've got great observation, and we can interact, observe and interact. And you can tweak it continuously. Mm. Mm. And so over the years, my grass has got um, more and more diverse and larger each season. I've got more comfortable with that. Mm. But as I take on, and we'll get to leasing, some of the leases behind me that no one wanted, they were chewed out, they just looked like chewed out rye. As I um, a, as I start grazing these um you know these, these pastures. I just like how you so, so you associate yourself with your sheep so much that you're like, when I start grazing, 
Well, I, had, well, I had to fight the visual image of you just <laughs> being so keen yep. that you're getting down there amongst you them. You know, I, d- I used to spend a lot of time in the paddock with them, just observing them, getting them used to me. You know, remember, I'm a townie, mm. ex-vegetarian. This is new to mm. me some years back. Do you, so, if you're an ex-vegetarian, um, do, do you eat the animals at any point in this process or are they there solely to rejuvenate the land? The, that's my primary role. Yeah. When our home home landscape, we own that land. We want to care for it. But no, I do. I do. Um, but I'm really big on the selection process, just like my seed saving with the gardening. Mm-hmm. So I'm. I've got a checklist of um, what I'm trying to breed with my sheep. And t- so typically on my farm, um, all the females I grow into breeders. All the males grow. You know, in a conventional farm, they may be as young as five to seven months when they go to the abattoir. Yeah. So I'll just point out n- none of my far- animals leave the farm. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I do. I'm now I do my own butchery and I'm in, right into low pressure stock handling, low pressure one you know, kill when it's that one bad day. And the only animals that go in our freezer are those that um, are male or that don't fit our breeding program. Or um, So, really. I've, I've got a longer selection list, but currently, if they get out the electrics, we bring them home and we fatten them, and then that's the, our only colour with opportunity of hmm. land, which will get too bushy. Yeah. Uh, I just can't grow enough am- enough animals, so they're pretty safe. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So that's so some of the effective result that you're showing. I mean, you're getting a di- more diverse range of grass, right? Some of the leases have exploded, um, mm. um, bushy with um, broad leaves, and yeah, it's, so it's all about days recovery. Yeah, exactly. Um, impact and then rest, and and that's mm. what allows the Beautiful. succession. So this is uh, so effective. So it's a system that works, and it shows itself to work quite quickly. Yeah, no, and I'm seeing uh, totally at scale. A lot of the farms I've, I've I'm working with in California, you know, they're roughly around 5,000 acres. Mm. Yeah, like so scalable as well. Yep. So you've mentioned a couple of times in the interview leasing. Now, this comes down to something uh, that's a, probably a fairly hot topic in Australia as well, land prices and so forth. A lot of people out there would be probably quite convinced that they just, they're priced out of the market, so to speak. They don't actually have to buy the land. You're doing a lot of leasing now. Just run us through that and how you got onto the idea. Yeah, I got to, I think that's how I got onto the idea. Uh, first course with Joel Salatin, run with um, Regrarians. Yep, that's Darren and Lisa who have been yep. on the show before. Yep. Yep. Hi, Daz. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, jo- Joel presented not only some um, some really, you know, regenerative and um, innovative farming practices, but the thing that jumped at me was um, th- this idea of access to land and. So I arrived home from that course, just looked up the valley, looked at my neighbouring places, started looking around, and within a week I'd tripled my acreage and I've just doubled it again since. And yeah. I'll just, I don't pay any lease money for any of the land I'm on. Hmm. Um, as Curtis Stone, the urban farmer, talks, you know, the pop- farmers are 2% of the population. Hmm. And so I think, wow, look at agriculture. <laughs> and then so to find an agrarian hmm. or someone that's got a regenerative skill set is. You know, it's on the move, it's on the increase, but it's a bit of a rare thing. So, I've got, I've, you know, I've become to really value the skill set and what I can offer to um, land landowners. Mm. So, I've just taken on another new lease. Um, the, the owners haven't, don't occupy it yet with the house. Mm. Uh, I won't tell you how much they paid for it, but <laughs> there's no way I could afford yeah. afford it. And the, so, to- and I, I've just taken on you know this ten acre title for twenty hours work a year. Cool. And, and they've walked away from three and a half thousand dollar lease from a a dairy farmer. Yet I 
they can see um, the aesthetics that I can offer them and, so, and the customised service. Yeah, yeah. Run us mm-hmm. through a quick conversation. How do you, You've made the approach to a landowner. You just quickly uh, say, look, here's what I've offered. Sometimes yes you, or no. usually they've approached me. Yep. Yeah, and then I guess it comes back to um, the relationship, you know, the, the human landscape first. It's got it's to work with the, with the people. Yep. Yep, and you've got, it's got to um, see, I guess, I didn't know where to start in the beginning. I've got a friend... Um, on the other side of, our, of New Plymouth where I live. Mm. He lives in town. He's got a mobile sharing business and a fencing business. On his way to work, he's got 20 leases. He runs 300 ewes on other people's land and he doesn't own any of that land. We have 19 of them uh, free lease. And he's regenerating all of those plots. Yep. yep. So, yeah, it's real fun. There's no shortage of land. Mm. So Well, we don't have a lot of time, but... i got three I, minutes. Okay. Well, um, so Alan... Alan Savory is one of the proponents, I guess, of this um, method of... He's a guy behind a thing called holistic management and he has done a TED Talk, which has been widely watched and to some extent criticised. He talks about... um, He mentions that, like, about a third of the Earth's land mass is really grassland naturally and not um, good for agriculture of other kinds. And he points out, well... If we can move animals in this way and manage it uh, this way that we can draw down a lot of carbon, because when you're growing this grass, you're increasing the... That's that's all capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And if you trample it back into the soil, it ends up in the soil. Um, Do you have an opinion on how relevant the strategies that you're using are for climate change? Uh, I've got an opinion. It's not very scientific, though, Adam, but, yeah, I, I... I like the concept that we can sequester carbon. You know, John Jevons with his gardening is focused on, on, on growing a lot of carbon. See, I, 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 I definitely think the tall grass farming and that timed sever and trample mm. and the dieback of the root system, that pulse building organic matter and then the, the, you know, the taller grass has a taller root system. There's mm. a lot of resilience there. We mm. don't have runoff drought, um, drought prone. You see, yeah, some incredible photos of... Um perennial or, or grassland managed this way where people wash off the roots um, of yep. the grass and hold it up and it's more impressive mm. than Bush's beard. Really? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, so, yeah, I guess I've I'm, I'm been heavily influenced by holistic management. Yeah. Really, really chasing yeah. it down. Indeedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've tied it down, Adam. I, Jody. Thank you so much for coming in tonight. I think Thanks we've sort of been able to guys. define some terms and, and get past some territory that we sort of hadn't quite gotten to yet. You are listening to Green the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. Hey, uh, Jody Roebuck, thank Bushy. you for coming in. My pleasure, Bushy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now, you, a few people you want to sort of throw a thanks to and a few events coming up in the year. Um, yeah, you, uh, you can follow us on, on social media on Roebuck Farm. Mm-hmm. We've got, always got a lot of events coming up. I'd just really like to thank um, the good people that brought me out over here. I've just been on a 13-day tour of New South Wales and Victoria, both working, educating, and getting myself onto some really great farms. So I don't, I'm not going to name one, but your farmers rock. Awesome. And then there was all those double entendres and dirty jokes we cracked today when we were hanging out. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Well, Jody, thank you for coming in. It's awesome. I've been looking forward to this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Thank you, Jed, for hitting the buttons in the correct sequence. Colsey, 
Thanks for taking the wetsuit off and coming up for the show. Um, it was good to be here. Thank you. Splendidly awesome. And uh, Lion of the Lake, what's coming up next week? <laughs> Uh, next week, we are going to talk about liquid gold. No. I'm talking about you, Ryan. You, Ryan. Right on, right <laughs> And how on. to use it in the garden. We're going to take... We're going to devote a whole show to that because it is the biggest untapped resource for home gardeners. We're going to do call, uh, call-ins. I actually think putting a tap on your, your bits and pieces would probably hurt. So maybe that's why it's untapped. <laughs> This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.